Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show. Today, I'm joined by former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, who is now the Dean at Belmont University. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on this uh, broadcast. It's a privilege and an honor to have you on. Um, how's your day going so far? My day has been pretty busy uh, working on some personnel stuff at the law school. We're he heading towards the end of the semester. And of course, with COVID, we have some serious complications just trying to get through the semester in, uh, in a way that everyone stays healthy and gets a good education. Awesome. Are you ready to get into questions? Sure, let's do it. First question I have is tell us about yourself. Uh, what was your childhood like? Well, I'm a Texan. I was born in San Antonio, raised in a family. There were uh, eight children. Uh, my mother had a second grade education. My dad, I'm sorry, my, my mother had a sixth grade education. My dad had a second grade education. So I grew up pretty poor uh, in a small two bedroom house in a community called Humble, Texas, just north of Houston. And, uh, you know, growing up, I thought I'd want to be a baseball player. That was my dream. But when I uh, graduated from high school, really got was was kind of lost about what I should do. So I enlisted in the Air Force. I got stationed at Fort Yukon, Alaska. That was my first duty assignment. I met two Air Force Academy graduates who took an interest in me and and I got an appointment to the Air Force Academy. I, I went there because I wanted to be a pilot, but my eyes betrayed me. And so after two years, I left, transferred to Rice University in Houston and uh, then decided to go to law school, went to Harvard Law School and then came back uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Houston and practiced law for 13 years. Awesome. And after you practiced law for 13 years, how did you get involved in Texas politics, of course, eventually becoming um, Texas Secretary of State and then being on the bench of the Texas Supreme Court being an Associate Justice? How did you get involved from being in private practice to then being in state politics? Yeah, well, you know, even though I was in private practice, I, I, I made it a point to be involved in community activities, local politics. Um, it's important for those of your uh, uh, people listening in, watching this broadcast to understand if you wanna get involved in politics, people need to know who you are and what you stand for. And so I became a Republican and um, uh, enjoyed those kinds of activities. I was chairman of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Harris County, where Houston is located. And then uh, a guy named George W. Bush decided he's going to run for governor of Texas in 1994. And um, after that election, about two weeks after that, I got a call from one of my partners at my law firm. Uh, and he said, listen, I just got a call from the newly elected governor. He would like to know if you'd like to come and work for him as his general counsel. I really didn't know George W. Bush that well. So uh, we, uh, we met and had a good conversation and uh, was general counsel for about three years. Love that job. Um, he's a great client, a great person to work for. Uh, an opening came up as Secretary of State and Governor Bush appointed me as Secretary of State. I did that for about a year and was a lot of fun, the chief elections officer. A lot of election officers have been in the news recently because of the presidential election. Uh, then a vacancy occurred on the Texas Supreme Court. And I guess I'd done such a good job for, for Governor Bush that he appointed me on the Texas Supreme Court. And uh, did that for two years. And then in 2000, of course, uh, Governor Bush ran for president. He was elected president and he was looking for a good lawyer to be the White House counsel. 
and he asked me to go to Washington and I went to Washington and did that for four years. And then at the beginning of the second term, it was uh, John Ashcroft, the attorney general stepped down and President Bush asked me to serve as the attorney general. I did that for almost three years. So that's, that's the extent of my public service. And what was it like serving in the Bush White House on the council and then eventually attorney general? What was that part all like? Um, for some of our listeners out there who are younger, they don't know what the White House Council is. Ah, okay. They don't teach it in school, unfortunately, or what goes on in the executive branch or everything like that. So what is the White House Council? The White House Council is the chief lawyer uh, in the White House. And so there are all kinds of issues that arise. At, um, for example, ethics. And, you know, the, the, the White House staff are expected to follow certain ethics requirements. My job is to make sure they understand what those rules are. I also review every, everything the president reads. Everything the president signs is reviewed by the White House counsel. You have a, I had a team of about 13, 14 lawyers, and these are like the brainiest. I mean, these are very, very smart young lawyers, many of them who had clerked for the U.S. Supreme Court. Many of them had gone to Ivy League law school. So these are really, really bright people. They all want to work in the White House. They all want to serve the president of the United States. And so my job basically was to interact, interface between the White House and the Department of Justice, the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer of the country. There are 125,000 people that work for the attorney general. I had 14 people that worked for me when I was the White House counsel. Uh, so obviously you can appreciate all the legal decisions at the end of the day fall upon the shoulders of the attorney general. He is charged, he or she is charged by statute to advise the executive branch. And you want the attorney general making the final decision on every controversial legal issue why? Because charged by statute to do that, but also more importantly, at the end of the day, when those decisions are made by the president or someone in the executive branch and it's challenging the courts, it's going to be the Department of Justice and the Attorney General who's going to be defending those actions in the courts. So there's a big difference. Uh, the Attorney General has to go testify before Congress. The White House counsel does not. The Attorney General gives all kinds of media interviews. The White House counsel gives far fewer interviews. The attorney general travels all over the country, travels around the world, uh, promoting the president's law enforcement policies and priorities. A lot less travel when you work as White House counsel in the White House. So that's a thumbnail description of the differences between the two offices. Awesome. And thank you for um, giving that details for some of our listeners who might not know about that. And also, of course, being attorney general, it's a cabinet position, one of the 15. Um, what was it like going through a Senate confirmation? if you would be willing to walk us through that. Well, uh, yeah, the, the president nominated me in November of 19, uh, uh, in the, November of 2004. And my hearing was in January. And so you spend that time reading these binders, thick binders of, of DOJ policies and protocols. You review the, per, the, the chief personnel in the department. So you review any controversial issues the department is handling. Uh, you review also the priorities of what senators are going to be asking you. And so you spend months studying about the Department of Justice. You, then you have several moots where you actually sit down in a chair in front of a panel of lawyers and they ask me questions as if I'm in a hearing. And at the end of the day, if you've, if you've been properly prepared, you're, you're not asked a question that you haven't, been, you haven't anticipated. Many Republicans, because I'm, I was Republican, appointed by a Republican president, the Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the committee which holds hearings for the Attorney General, will furnish their questions in advance. 
Sometimes some Democratic members did, but oftentimes they didn't. And so, but nonetheless, if you if the work has been done right, you're not asked a question that you don't anticipate and you have an answer to. And then when that hearing is over, it's quite a relief. Uh, you're hopeful that you've done a good job and that you'll get at least 51 votes in order to be confirmed. So um, it's quite an ordeal. And, um, uh, but it's such a privilege to be a Senate confirmed cabinet secretary. Uh, it's an incredible honor. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for President Bush for giving me that opportunity. And just going to Attorney General a little bit more, um, of course, there's no normal day when you're a cabinet secretary, but what, was, what were most days like when you were the U.S. Attorney General? Like, how did that start? Okay, I would normally begin every day, working day, by going over to the FBI building, which is across the street from Main Justice, and I would sit down with Bob Mueller. Bob Mueller was the FBI director, and we would receive an intelligence briefing from the CIA. There would be a CIA briefing that would come and talk to us about what had happened overnight, the intelligence uh, that, that we had uh, received overnight. I would also receive the briefing from our, the head of our criminal division. Uh, at the time, it was a woman. She would talk to us about important litigation affecting the Department of Justice. So there'd be a series of people that would give, give us a briefing. Then after that, every day would be different. I might go up to the Hill uh, to meet with a senator to ask him to support uh, one of the president's nominees. I might, I might have a hearing on the Hill uh, I might have a, a, a press conference on a particular matter involving the Department of Justice. Uh, I might travel somewhere within Washington, D.C. or outside Washington, D.C. I'd get on an FBI uh, jet and fly across the country uh, in order to give a speech to groups. So every day was different. I might go to the White House, participate in a domestic policy meeting in, in, with the president, or to go in the Situation Room to, to talk about national security issues. Uh, every day was absolutely different. Every day was exciting. Every day was special. Incredible. And um, while you're attorney general, of course, I was in the middle, there's the war on terror and everything. What were some of the priorities and role that as attorney general, you ended up playing because of the war on terror compared to other attorney generals? Well, of course, when the war on terror began in 2001, I was not the attorney general. I was White House counsel. And so many of the uh, policies and procedures developed to effectively protect America were developed under John Ashcroft when he was the attorney general. And so um, obviously the world had changed by the time but I became attorney general in 2005. Some of those policies still existed. Some of them you know, had been discontinued. Uh, those that, that still existed, I, I carried them out. But the world had changed pretty dramatically. Now, as White House counsel, I was involved in discussions as some of these policies were developed. I sat in on every National Security Council meeting as these were discussed by the president with his National Security Council. I would sit in with meetings uh, in my office with lawyers from the CIA, the NSA, State Department, Defense, talking about, all right, what do we have to do to protect America and how can the president do it in a way that's consistent with the Constitution and the laws passed by Congress. So always our objective as lawyers was to ensure that whatever we were doing to keep America safe, we were doing so in a way that was consistent with the law. Awesome. And thank you very much for all your service as Attorney General and serving the great state of Texas. I'm, I lived in Houston for a little bit, so I'm a big Texas guy. Um, my next question I have is, what do you see in the next coming years 
that Americans could be facing with their civil liberties, of course, with the mask mandate. There's been a big fight over that, but other civil liberties such as big tech and everything like that. What are some of the challenges that you see potentially happening? Well, I, I think there is a serious national security threat. Um, you know, we fought an enemy that didn't speak like us, in many ways didn't look like us, and we fought, we fought them overseas. But today, what we're finding more and more is that our enemies um, and the battles that we fight are probably going to be within the, our U.S. borders. And when you're talking about um, dealing with someone or detaining someone within our borders, or even American citizens in particular, there are constitutional rights that attach. And so dealing with those kind of threats are much more difficult, quite frankly. Um, you have more, more flexibility and discretion when you're dealing with a foreigner in a foreign land far away, but much different when you're dealing with a threat here within our borders. It might involve American citizens, quite honestly. So that's something that I, that I would worry about. Obviously, uh, when the war on terror began, we quickly realized that probably the most important currency that we needed to have to be successful was information. The world has changed dramatically since I joined, since I worked in the White House in terms of technology, the, uh, the ability to how we communicate, how we all communicate, the ability of the government to amass massive amounts of information, including private information of American citizens. And so what limitations exist on that? How do we guard against that? So th that, I wouldn't call it a, a threat per se, but it's something that I think all Americans should be concerned about is, you know, what is the, the, the we want to make sure that our government has the information it needs to keep us safe, but we don't want the government to have so much information that they, they don't need and it infringes upon our, our own our civil rights or civil liberties. And that's always a challenge and the balance that has to be struck when you're talking about a threat against our country, the balance between civil liberties and our security. Absolutely. And a few other questions I just have before I wrap up this interview is, do you have a memorable experience with President Bush that captures his personality or any memorable experiences that you really <laughs> remember and stick out to you? You, of course, um, have known him since he was governor of Texas. Do you have any super good memories? I'm sure you have a lot, but if you can just think of one. Oh, I, you know, I, I wish you'd asked me this question beforehand so I could think of it. I'll, I'll just say this. President George W. Bush has his mother's personality. Uh, he was a reverend at times. He loved to laugh, never took himself too seriously. Obviously, when the occasion called for it, he would, he would, he would rise to that occasion and be serious and, and act like the commander in chief and the leader of this country. But on, but on the other hand, quietly uh, in, those, in those private moments, he was always someone that I very much enjoyed, very much admired. I learned a lot just watching him and his wife, Laura. I, but I watched, the, I learned a lot about being, being a leader. I learned a lot about being a, a good politician. I learned a lot about being a good husband. I learned a lot about being a good father. And I think it's one of the things when I talk to young people about leadership, I always remind them, watch what you do and watch what you say because you're being watched. You're gonna, people that work for you are always gonna be listening to what you say, are gonna be watching what you do, and you set an example. It's very important that you set the right example. Absolutely. Thank you for the great advice there to all of our young listeners out there, college kids, and everybody. Um, and another question I just have real quick is, 
what position as a public servant did you enjoy the most? You were Secretary of State of Texas, judge on the Texas um, State Supreme Court, served in White House Counsel, then Attorney General. What position did you enjoy the most? Well, being a cabinet secretary, uh, being driven around by FBI agents carrying machine guns, never having to worry about where you're going to park, how you're going to fly, was a great privilege. And there's no question about it. However, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, the attorney general is involved in the most difficult, controversial decisions that one can possibly imagine. And it's just tough. You're going to be criticized no matter what decision you make, whether you're right or wrong. If you're an American citizen and you have the right or ability to go to work every day at the White House, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, it, the White House is such a special place and to work for someone that you really admire and like uh, and believe in, I mean, those four years that I spent in the White House were probably the most enjoyable of my public service. And I would do it again in a second. My wife probably wouldn't let me do it again, but, but if asked to serve again, I, I think it's important for young people in particular to think about giving a part of their adult life to public service. You have a lifetime to make money and our country needs good people, quite frankly. And so I would, I would strongly encourage young people like yourself to think about giving a little bit back of yourself to this country in a form of public service. Awesome. And talking about public service and everything, I actually currently serve on uh, a guy who's running for Indiana Secretary of State. I'm his driver is assistant and everything. So I'm always taking photos of him when he's speaking. So I'm, I'm admired by many people out there to one day serve our country in some form of public service. Great. And my final question I just have is, um, do you have any advice for the next generation of leaders out there? When I mean leaders, maybe not everybody wants to run for public office or hold a position, but what advice would you have for the next generation of leaders and innovators out there in America? Well, I would say, I would say that we need you, first of all. You know, we, um, people say we, we're going, they, they ask me, have you ever seen it so bad in this country? And I remind them, well, you know, it was bad in 68 with Vietnam, uh, the assassinations of Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, it was bad in you know seventy two with Watergate, the impeachment of uh, almost the impeachment of, of President Nixon. Then I remind them of the Civil War. We were a divided nation. So our country has had gone through difficult times before the depression, as another example. But we always went through it. We always got through it. We are a great nation. We are because we are a great people, and we live and operate under a structure of government that is really un, you know unique uh, in this world. We will continue to be successful if we continue to bring up, encourage, train, inspire young leaders to assume positions of responsibility. So long as we continue to do that, I have great confidence in the future of our country. People like yourself, for example, people that care about the future of our country, care about their fellow citizen, and, and know that in the end, you do the very best you can. Are you gonna make mistakes? Absolutely. Nonetheless, you do the best you can act with integrity. And that's all, at the end of the day, that's all that you can do. And by gosh, that's all that anyone can, can expect you to do is doing the best you can. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Jacob Buer's mm -hmm. show today. I enjoyed our conversation. Um, and have a good rest of your week. Thank you so much.